was 20 years ago this week that Ken Starr sent his notorious report to Congress, complete with graphic details about Bill Clinton's affair with Monica Lewinsky. Starr made a case that Clinton's conduct amounted to substantial and credible evidence that could be grounds to impeach the president. As Starr laid them out in his report, these involved allegations of 10 specific crimes by the president, perjury about his affair with Lewinsky, witness tampering, and obstruction of justice. But there was an 11th article of impeachment in Starr's report, a catch-all count that could have direct relevance to events today under President Trump. Starr called that 11th count abuse of power, a phrase that didn't amount to a specific crime, but instead involved Clinton's use of the powers of his office to thwart Starr's investigation. To President Trump's relentless attacks on special counsel Robert Mueller, very similar to Bill Clinton's attacks on Starr, amount to an abuse of power? We'll ask Starr that very question, and you'll hear his surprising answer on today's episode of Skullduggery. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their presidents are crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just Russia say is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isakoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So, you know, Danny, the occasion for us to talk to Starr uh, in this episode is he's published a new book called Contempt, a Memoir of the Clinton Investigation. And it actually has quite a bit uh, in it uh, that um, we'll want to grill him about, and we will. But before we get to that, we still have to deal with the continued fallout from Bob Woodward's explosive book, Fear, about the Trump presidency. Um, And we're also going to talk to our Yahoo colleague, uh, Lupe Lupin, on um, the Brett Kavanaugh nomination. Lupe is a lawyer who's been following it, uh, the Kavanaugh hearings and uh, the continued fallout from them uh, very closely for Yahoo. But let's start with that Woodward book. Uh, we've now both had a chance to dig into it. And um, it strikes me that there's both a lot of bad news for Donald Trump in this book, but also some possible good news. Well, there is a lot of bad news. And a lot of that's been chewed over um, in the media, on cable uh, TV, um, kind of dominated the news cycle for uh, many days, as uh, Woodward books tend to do. Uh, you know, primarily, um, there's just so much vivid detail uh, that raises questions about, you know, his his fitness for office um, and, you know, and, and his erratic behavior and um, and how he is has been kind of uh, almost manipulated uh, by the staff around him. All fascinating stuff, fascinating stuff. But what Woodward doesn't do in this book um, is really advance the ball in a significant way in terms of the Russia investigation and the, the you know really big fundamental question that a lot of Democrats and liberals uh, are hoping uh, would represent the downfall and possible impeachment um, of uh, of uh, President Trump, um, and that is that 
um, the Trump campaign uh, colluded with uh, the Russians and uh, that in exchange for the Russians helping um, uh, Trump win, um, they, uh, you know, did favors for right. uh, for for Putin and, and and for Russia. Right. So look, I, I I've sort of been through the Russia port portions of the book in 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 fine detail here and dissected it. And it struck me that um, there were a couple of passages that um, uh, are potentially ominous, uh, especially the. Uh, uh, the discussion about Mike Flynn and the grounds for his firing, uh, because you know, as you know, uh, it was publicly presented that uh, he was fired because he lied to um, Mike Pence, the vice president, about his conversations during the transition with Russian Ambassador Kislyak and whether they had discussed sanctions. And Trump uh, and Woodward does advance the ball. Uh, a bit on that because he reports that um, uh, Reince Priebus, then the chief of staff, and Don McGahn, uh, the White House counsel, actually reviewed the transcripts of Flynn's talks with Kislyak when this first arose very early in the Trump uh, presidency. And after they looked at those transcripts, they had no doubt that Flynn had lied. Uh, according to Woodward, the transcripts show that it was actually Flynn who raised the issue of sanctions with Kislyak, not Kislyak with Flynn, and that Flynn, and that they had three separate discussions relating to the lifting of sanctions once Trump became president. Uh, And this raises the question about whether Flynn was freelancing in those talks with Kislyak or whether he was acting under instructions or consultations with the president himself. And Woodward writes on page 82, the sequence suggested that Trump might have known of Flynn's role, but it was unclear what Flynn had said to the president about his conversations with Kislyak. And why this is important is if there were Flynn discussions with Trump about what he was saying to Kislyak, it could put an entirely new motive for uh, Trump's conversation with James Comey. I hope you can let Flynn go. Right. And, um, the, if Kislyak had brought up the issue of sanctions on his own and Flynn was just responding to it, that's very different, uh, as you suggest, than Flynn bringing it up himself. Um, very unlikely that he would have just been freelancing and, uh, you know, a reasonable chance that he had had conversations with Trump um, about about that. And um, and then that, as you say, provide would provide a motive on Trump's part. Uh, to try to get uh, Comey to lay off. Um, the thing that's puzzling about this is, um, you know, I, I guess Flynn just never thought that these uh, conversations would come out. But, you know, the guy was a top intelligence official. He was the, the, director, of the, the director of the DIA. <laughs> yeah. Um, and He uh, ought he, to he, have known that the, conversations with the Russian ambassador are going to be monitored by U.S. intelligence. But, you know, hubris um, yeah, right. uh, can often get you in trouble. And uh, perhaps that's what happened um, here. Uh, again, it does not... Uh, really go to the issue of collusion, right. um, but it does uh, potentially uh, put 
um, the president in, in more uh, jeopardy um, if that's why right. he tried to get Comey to lay off. Um, and, um, you know, clearly that's, uh, uh, you know, would be then some of the questions that, that the Mueller team would want to ask the president, whether it's um, in in an in a interview in person or in writing. Right. And exactly. It, it's worth remembering that Flynn remains a real wild card in the exactly. whole investigation. Exactly. He because is, he's cooperating. He's cooperating. And we in have... fact, we know, uh, I mean, we don't know for a fact, but but he, uh, the, you know, the sentencing was put off a little right. while ago, which suggests he's continuing to cooperate and that the Mueller team thinks that they uh, are or will get valuable information from him. So that's an important wild card. Right. And, and you know, especially uh, uh, important now that we know that the Papadopoulos matter really didn't go that, that far for Mu- that Mueller, that he didn't get substantial uh, cooperation for him from him. That's uh, one reason the uh, Mueller prosecutors wanted uh, to send Papadopoulos to jail to up for up to six months. They only got 14 days, not all that much. Much, but um, uh, it, it it is clear that of the cooperating witnesses that we know about, uh, Flynn remains the most significant. And until we know what Flynn has been telling Mueller, it's going to be uh, difficult for any of us to reach a final conclusion. Now there is a possibility the that goes. there is a possibility, although I don't know how strong a possibility of this, but that ultimately Paul Manafort eclipses um, Flynn as a more important witness. Um, if you know, if he flips, if, if, if he, he flips, if he flips, but um, he very well may be making the calculation um, that uh, um, he should hold out for a pardon. Yeah, uh, right. Now, at the same time, you know, I said there's some good news for 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 Trump. Uh, uh, for Trump in this, in the sense that Woodward does not really, um, as you point out, advance the ball on collusion. He has no new information substantiating any of the swirl of allegations uh, relating to collusion. And if anything, he throws a bit of cold water on uh, on some of them. He's uh, highly dubious about the uh, Christopher Steele dossier. He calls, calls it, it garbage. You see, yeah, well, he had called it publicly garbage uh, back in January of 2017. But he repeats that in the book. And, and Trump thanked him, by the way. And, and, <laughs> and Trump thanked him. And, and uh, Woodward is also critical of Comey for even raising the Steele dossier with uh Trump at that famous January 6, 2017 meeting, uh, making the point that uh, the intelligence community had prepared this very detailed, highly confirmed intelligence assessment showing the Russians had uh, indeed uh, uh, engaged in a sophisticated plot to manipulate our election. Uh, uh, according to Woodward, there were multiple human sources that the, uh, the intelligence community had backing up that assessment. Uh, and uh, as Woodward portrays it, uh, when Comey raised the um, uh, uncorroborated, unverified uh, dossier allegations and the famous claims about the uh, or notorious claims about the P tape. Uh, they were muddying the water, and that Trump had a justifiable reason to be quite um, pissed off at Comey uh, for um, for bringing it up. And well, it- pissed off at Comey, but also um, it gave Trump um, some pretty strong um, ammunition. Uh, to, as you put it, muddying the waters, but to undermine the whole investigation. Because if the FBI is uh, trafficking in uh, you know, salacious, unverified, um, unsubstantiated allegations. Then does that doesn't that in some way cast doubt on the whole 
the whole thing, and uh, Trump has done a lot. Of, Trump has done that, you know, throughout. Now, what I think the FBI would say, what Comey would say, is that uh, they had an obligation to provide the incoming president with a what they call a defensive briefing to let him know that this was what was out there, was out there, and that it was inevitably going to become public. Um, and uh, and furthermore, um, that you know there is there are national security reasons to make sure the president knows about this so that uh, he cannot so, so so that he won't be blackmailed. Exactly, that was the explanation Comey had given. But here's what uh, what Woodward writes on uh, on page seventy of the book. They, the intelligence community officials who were briefing Trump that day, wanted the formal assessment to be believed by the president-elect. Why pollute it with the dossier summary? They knew enough about Trump to know it would rile him up. It likely would have riled anyone up. Why would they accompany some of their most serious work yeah. with this I think that's. I think it is dossier? a totally valid point. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, one thing that you, you just briefly mentioned, but I think is, is worth talking about a little more, uh, Woodward uh, says in the book that uh, the intelligence community had six human sources right. on the, um, you know, the the larger allegation about Russian uh, meddling interference. in interference yeah. in the election, um, and that and that one of those sources, um, the the CIA. Uh, wanted to exfiltrate uh, from uh, from Russia because they thought that um, his uh, you know his life or well-being could be in jeopardy. Um, ultimately, he didn't want to leave because he worried about what would happen to his family. Um, but um, we kept hearing from um, the intelligence community that they were very certain of this information, um, and we, we but we did not hear a lot of detail about where that certainty came from and. Um, you know, having that many uh, human sources, um, right. uh, I think, is is significant. Although I know that Trump at some point said he doesn't believe in human sources. I think <laughs> right. he said that somewhere. Right. He's quoted right. in the book right. saying right. that. Right. Uh, but needless to they say, all have agendas and yeah. none of them like him. Right. But, but needless to say, one also can uh, understand why these human sources uh, were so fearful. Uh, and we've only had that point reinforced uh, just in the last few days with the, um, the new information about uh, the Russian uh, poisoning of uh, Sergei Skripal, the, uh, uh, the, the, defecting, the defector in the UK and how two Russians had flown over uh, from Moscow, uh, visited him, and, uh, uh, and managed to use the uh, highly uh, toxic Novichok uh, to poison him. Fascinating uh, development mm-hmm. in that story. So they've been charged. Uh, uh, in, in the UK. In, now, in the of course, the, the, those guys just gave an interview to RT, the Russian propaganda station, saying they were just tourists. Uh, they're on they wanted holiday. to see the cathedral in Salisbury <laughs> right. and that famous old clock. Yeah. It's actually hilarious to see the juxtaposition of like these the mugshots of these two very thuggish looking uh, <laughs> r- Russian agents. Yeah. And they were on a like a buddy trip uh, in uh, in you know in Salisbury in yeah. Salisbury uh, and uh, you know they they uh, they wanted to go to uh, Stonehenge together, <laughs> but there was like too much mud or something. I mean, right, 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 by right. the way, uh, the the editor of um, of, of RT, who does yeah. the interview with them, yeah. um, she uh, at one point uh, pours them a glass of uh, cognac uh, yeah, and yeah. says, courage. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now listen, before we get to Star, though, we want to talk to our colleague Lupe about all the developments going on right now in the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. So why don't we get him on the line? Hey, Lupe. Hey, guys. Hi there. So, um... Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, quite a bit of uh, news going on uh, uh, as we speak right now. Bring us up to date. Where do things stand? 
Well, so it, it just keeps coming with Kavanaugh. It seems like every uh, every day or two we get a new story, um, uh, generally coming out of the committee Democrats who have uh, who've access to his uh, the committee confidential documents and have been releasing them since his hearings, and also uh, apparently have have got some other sources today. Um, some rumors that have been circulating about a letter sent to Diane Feinstein, or I guess actually sent to a representative from California, Anna Eshoo, and passed to Dianne Feinstein, uh, broke out into the open. And um, Senator Feinstein issued a statement, which actually doesn't tell us much. It just says that she'd received information from an individual concerning Brett Kavanaugh um, and that she had referred the matter to federal investigators. Um, some other reporting based on, on anonymous sources, which is you know is not, to, not my reporting, but in the New York Times and in The Intercept, it said that this letter concerned uh, an issue between Kavanaugh and a woman uh, when they were both in high school, so um, almost 30 years ago. And so an issue, an issue of, of sexual misconduct is the allegation. But we obviously uh, have to uh, treat this very cautiously. We don't have a lot of information yet. There are going to be a lot of people suspicious of this being a kind of a last-minute hit job uh, where you know Democrats are uh, doing everything they can to possibly delay um, this, um, uh, you know, th- this confirmation. Um, but uh, the ranking member of the Senate Judiciary mem- uh, Committee referred this, according to the New York Times, to the FBI. And so that is a that is a real thing that I think uh, is going to be discussed and, and looked into. Um, and we just don't know what impact it'll have. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the process here and why um, a letter like this would be uh, referred uh, to the FBI. Um, I, I, I think it's not because uh, the FBI is is going to be investigating um, you know some crime, but the FBI plays a crucial role in uh, doing background checks in the vetting of uh, federal nominees and um, and a particularly aggressive role in in um, uh, in investigating the backgrounds of Supreme Court nominees. Isn't that right, Mike? Um, yeah, it is. And of course, as I think we, you and I were discussing before, it was um, the FBI in its very early stages that had uh, begun an investigation into Anita Hill, Hill's uh, allegations uh, against uh, Clarence Thomas and reached the conclusion uh, that or it reached was, no conclusion. Re- reached no conclusion. It was inconclusive. But the parallels here, and again, yeah. we have to be, particularly you bring up Clarence Thomas, you could be very cautious uh, about drawing any parallels. But just in terms of process, uh, Anita Hill um, originally uh, sent a a confidential letter uh, to, I think, the Senate Judiciary Committee, and it was referred to the FBI. Um, it only became public two days before the full Senate was supposed to vote uh, for Clarence Thomas, and and probably would have uh, been confirmed um, fairly easily, or would have been confirmed. Um, you know, without a problem at that point. Uh, that um, letter was leaked to uh, Nina Totenberg and, and Tim uh, of NPR, Tim Phelps of, of uh, Newsday. Um, and then uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee felt it had to call um, Anita Hill as a witness before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and then it all became public. Uh, Lupe, do we know, even know whether the uh, woman uh, who's at the center of this uh, whether her identity is known to the Senate Democrats? So according to the New York Times' story, the woman is the writer of the letter, so she would presumably be known to uh, anyone with access to it. 
And uh, Senator Feinstein's statement also suggests she's been in contact with uh, the in, well, who she calls that individual. She said that she strongly requested confidentiality um, and declined to come forward or press the matter further. Well, that does seem a little contradictory. If you write a letter to the Senate uh, raising the issue and then say, but I don't want to talk about it and I don't want to come forward, uh, you know, what's the purpose of writing the letter in the first place? Exactly. Um, and I think we should note that also this, you know, this statement came out, um, in, in, in Feinstein's statement, I mean, and, and the stories about the letter came out after an executive session where uh, the, the Judiciary Committee met and Republicans voted down all of Democrats' uh, attempts to inquire further into uh, the, the documents that have been withheld on the nominee and, and, and to subpoena other documents. All so right, so one possibility is that it's a, it's a delaying tactic. Um, right. uh, you know, it seems and, like a strong possibility. But, but, but uh, yeah. uh, uh, Chuck Grassley, the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, said... Uh, that this isn't going to affect his timeline. I guess we'll see. Right. So, look, uh, Lupe, you've, uh, you, you know, we all watched the hearings. It, it seemed to me that the hearings didn't move the needle one way or the other uh, in terms of changing any votes in the Senate. Um, but now that, you know, the Democrats are pressing a discrete set of issues with uh, Kavanaugh, uh, making the case that he misled the committee or provided false testimony uh, on a number of areas, um, do they have a credible case? And if so, where what are their strongest uh, arguments that Kavanaugh was not truthful in his testimony before the committee? Sure. The, I think there's, there's certainly a, a case to be made, and I think that the, the, the issue, as most issues with, with Kavanaugh's nomination, comes down to uh, what the full documents uh, would say and whether the Democrats have been able to provide enough in the way of documentation to, to really uh, push the case over into to finding more information out. Uh, there are sort of two main points to uh, the, the credibility questions Democrats have raised about the nominee. The first is uh, his sort of knowledge of a, a scandal that came up a long time ago uh, during the early years of the Bush administration where uh, some Senate a Senate aide to Senator Bill Frist and a, a colleague of his who worked on the sort of IT side of the Judiciary Committee were able to work together to get access to the Democrats' files and considering some old nominations and pass information about what the Democrats were thinking as they were working through these nominations back to the White House and, and back to the nominee to prepare them for the hearings. Uh, the, the, the emails they brought forth so far definitely show that Kavanaugh received intelligence about these nominees. There's one email, it's very notable, um, that includes the, the subject line spying. There are other emails that Democrats have said include verbatim uh, text from talking points they prepared and draft letters they prepared. Um, what Kavanaugh has insisted, though, is that he didn't know that that intelligence came specifically from documents stolen from the, the, the shared server. Of the that, were, that were hacked in Leahy's phrase. That's the formulation he's put on it. And I should say, exactly. we're, we're, point, we're talking about a guy who used to work for the Republicans on the Senate Judiciary, Manuel, Manuel Miranda, Miranda. Uh, yeah. somebody I'm sure uh, very few of our listeners have ever heard of, um, unless, you, unless they were listening last week when we referred to him in our conversation <laughs> with Ron Klain. But um, I don't know. It strikes me as a bit obscure uh, uh, to... Uh, 
uh, hang a, um, a a charge that Kavanaugh was lying about, uh, uh, especially if there's no specific um, evidence that Kavanaugh would have known that these uh, documents were in fact hacked. Yeah, you look at these emails, and they they do refer to you know sources on the Democratic side, or I think one talked about a mole on the Democratic side, but. I got to say, by the way, uh, Lupe, that, that uh, it's not great um, uh, espionage tradecraft on the part of uh, Miranda and those guys mm-hmm. to, to put uh, spying <laughs> in the subject line and, and, and mole in emails. But anyway, I guess your point is that there, I guess the Democrats would argue that uh, Kavanaugh should have known, should have uh, must have been able to connect the dots. Exactly. And so I should move on to the other topic that they've, they've charged him with being less than truthful about, which is the, the nominations of two federal judges back in the Bush administration, um, uh, uh, William Pryor and Charles Pickering. In both cases, uh, Kavanaugh was asked at his own nomination hearing when he was up for the D.C. Circuit whether you know he'd been aware of some extreme uh, views those nominees had held, some, some conduct that they'd engaged in, and he essentially answered, I wasn't involved. Uh, it was with Pickering, he said he wasn't primarily involved in handling the nomination. And with Pryor, he said that he wasn't one of the people who worked on it personally and that he wasn't involved in handling the nomination. And Democrats have released some emails that were originally marked committee confidential that show that you know, at least he had a peripheral role in handling those nominations. He was talking to people about them. It, it appears that he may have arranged or conducted an interview with Bill Pryor uh, at the outset of you know, sort of conceiving the nomination and that he was invited to a number of strategy meetings about those nominees right before their hearing, uh, where these subjects would almost certainly have come up. You know, um, Lupe, what strikes me about um, how uh, Kavanaugh has handled himself in these hearings is that he has had a a hard time kind of making the transition uh, between, um, you know, being the kind of political operative that he was in the Bush White House um, and... um, and then, uh, you know, uh, going through a Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing. And it makes me think a little bit of John Roberts, who had a similar um, kind of resume and background. He also worked um, in the uh, in the White House. He also was involved in, you know, judicial politics. Um, but he covered his tracks really well. I mean, one thing stands out, for example, I mean, remember when Roberts was not was uh, nominated and everyone wanted to know how involved was he in the Federalist Society, you know, this very right wing uh, legal uh, legal group and and Roberts it turns out was not very involved in the Federalist Society although um, uh, you know there were not not a lot of evidence of them going there and you know giving speeches um, Kavanaugh um, you know t- was much more openly involved in you know kind of all those kinds of political operations and um, and then when he's up there testifying talking about the rule of law and the fine points of, uh, you know, constitutional law. There's just this kind of disconnect between that and his political role in the White House. Um, and it just was not nearly as seamless for him as it was for, for Roberts. And I think that's been part of his problem. Right. And to your point, he said in his, his hearing testimony that he admitted he's got Leonard Leo's, who's the head of the Federalist Society, um, and sort of the main mover in that organization. He's, he's known Leonard Leo, he says, for 25 years. He's got his number in his phone, he sort of very openly admits that that's the, the milieu he comes from, if you will, the, the sort of Federalist Society. And you see it also in the emails that, that have been released where they're, you know, he's on email chains talking about potential nominees to, uh, to various open positions in the judiciary. 
and they're very political discussions where they talk about you know, what sort of judge he would be and what his political preferences are and whether he would be like another judge who conservatives have grown to dislike because he writes liberal decisions. Um, all of that sort of political thinking about the judiciary is threaded through Brett Kavanaugh's emails uh, yeah. with his colleagues during his time in the White House. I was um, uh, especially intrigued by the questions that uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse posed in writing to uh, Kavanaugh over, uh, a few days ago, asking him about whether he had been, ever been treated for a gambling addiction. Um, what was that all about, and uh, how has uh, Kavanaugh responded? This is a story that's been sort of on the back burner since July. The, um, in the early days of, the, of Kavanaugh's nomination, uh, some people pulled out his, uh, his financial disclosure forms as a federal judge and noticed that he had reported tens of thousands of dollars of credit card debt over the course of about a dozen years. And the White House's initial story about how that debt uh, came to be uh, said it came from home improvements on, one hand, on, on the one hand and also from a sort of periodic expense where he would front uh, the cost of baseball season tickets for his friends and be paid back later. And the, the White House spokesman explained that you know, the, the fronting of the expense happened at the end of the year and the repayments happened at the beginning of the new year, and so it all had to be reported. And we should point out, story. Kavanaugh is an avid sports fan. I think he's uh, goes he's a regular at Washington Nationals games uh, and, right. uh, and, has, and, and has been to every Washington National playoff game uh, in recent years. Doesn't look like we're gonna, he's going to have that opportunity this year. But um, I, think if uh, <laughs> I think if your son, Zach, were on the Senate Judiciary <laughs> Committee, yeah. he would be a yes vote for Kavanaugh, given his uh, his. Uh, if, Fanatic if, if support. He get a, if he can get a seat with Kavanaugh <laughs> at the games, yeah. Um, but um, okay, so uh, but the idea treated for gambling addiction. Where did that come right. from? So that came from uh, number one, these questions about his his credit card, and also from an email that was released during the hearings, um, where uh, Kavanaugh, after I think a, a sort of guys' weekend with other White House aides, uh, had sent out uh, a message to them saying. You know, sorry for getting aggressive during a dice game once again, um, and you know, a, a few other you know sort of uh, collegial <laughs> remarks, and then encouraged all of his friends to keep everything extremely confidential, um, including with their spouses. And so he got that email, especially its reference to a dice game, sort of uh, amplified questions. That, uh, that senators had, had already been you know, talking about behind the scenes about where what actually explains uh, these you know, high credit card so, balances. But wait a second, but, but how do we get from a reference in an email to a dice game to treatment for gambling addiction? It's a good question, and it's, it's not clear what else is behind the scenes. I, we, I reached out actually to Senator Whitehouse's office to ask if they had any any further information about why they'd asked that question, and they declined to answer. Uh, he Senator Whitehouse gets even more specific than than gambling addiction. He actually asks whether he's accrued gambling debt in the state of New Jersey, whether he's ever had a debt discharged by a creditor in the state of New Jersey, and it seems like there's something that that 
perhaps Senator Whitehouse is alluding to, but whatever it is, he hasn't come out with it. And, and Kavanaugh has responded in writing, denying all of this, saying he's never been treated for gambling addiction. addiction. Yes, he's played, uh, uh, he's been to Poker. casinos in, by the in way, Atlantic who, City and right. small stakes blackjack, but uh, has never Does been, anyone play um, dice? That sounds like something out of a Damon Runyon story. <laughs> I mean, you think it, maybe... Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of hard to imagine these White House aides gathered somewhere. I know, like, like in some alley know, somewhere, like rolling dice. Right, right. Yeah, it does have the feel that the Democrats are just throwing anything they can at the wall, hoping something sticks, whether they've got anything substantive or not. There's certainly, that's that's fair. It seems like we're we're getting you know a, a full <laughs> a, a full opening of their notes about. Everything, whether whether or not they've really been able to back it up, and yeah, right. Like, and so one question Senator is Harris's questions on that point as well. Exactly. And so one question is, do they know that Kavanaugh is going to be confirmed? Um, but uh, you know, especially since um, the last Supreme Court, you know, the the Gorsuch hearing, you know, they just kind of sort of let him roll through. Um, do they have to show their base that they are fighting and they're doing everything that they possibly can to block this confirmation hearing, even though some of it is just theater? And they're definitely getting pressure on that point. You, know, you have Brian Fallon, who was a, a former aide to Hillary Clinton, who runs the Demand Justice Group, who is advocating very strongly for Democrats to push on Kavanaugh as hard as they possibly can um, and the other former Democrats, I, I spoke with Jim Manley, who's Harry Reid's former chief of staff. Also, you know, we're very strong in urging uh, Senator Feinstein, who's the ranking member, and the other members to be aggressive in their questioning of Kavanaugh. It, there is a a real um, sort of grassroots push for these Democrats not to just let this one pass by them like they did. Yeah, but right now, yeah, as you look at it, as you look at it right now, is there any, you know, you talk about... Democrats getting aggressive, fighting as hard as they can. Yeah, it seems to me they've been doing that. Right now, is there any scenario that could derail uh, Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation to the Supreme Court? They're all very remote, and I think Democrats privately would acknowledge that. In having spent a week looking at this and talking to people, there's sort of three routes that I see. And the first is that the questions we've already discussed about um, potentially misleading the Senate. Senator uh, Collins in Maine gave an interview to the press leader up there where she said that she would be very concerned if it turned out that he had misled the Senate. There, um, Senator Hirono, I don't think we've talked about this, but Senator Hirono raised a, a very specific issue about um, Kavanaugh's past uh, litigation against the interests of Native Hawaiians and some emails he, he sent in the White House about Native Hawaiian rights. And those um, Senator Hirono in the hearing analogized to uh, Native Alaskans' rights, and obviously Native Alaskans are oh, a very Murkowski. real concern yeah. to Senator Murkowski. Interesting. I was um, wondering where you were going with that because I was like, "Well, Senator Hirono is a Democrat from Hawaii. How's that going to uh, move the needle?" But that's that's interesting. She's definitely a no. Yeah, yeah. But she 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 invoked um, her colleagues in Alaska in her question about this, and I think uh, we've seen some reporting out of Alaska that. that that there's been some attention to that issue in, in that state. And then the third, and this is admittedly no one really imagines it, but the, the third point is that Senator Flake went a little further in his questioning of the nominee 
than um, I think some people expected. Senator um, Jeff Flake, Republican. Um, Republican of Arizona, who's right. retiring this year, not right. going to be back in the Senate for the next term. And he, he pushed the, the nominee on his questions of executive power and, and independent agencies or really independent departments like the Justice Department, and to what extent the president could fire someone like Robert Mueller under, the, under his view of the law. Uh, and you know those questions, I think it's fair to say. I talked to some Democratic aides and some Republican aides. Just went a little further than you know the ordinary Jeff Flake um, signaling concern. He actually sort of pressed the nominee on it, and he got Brett Kavanaugh to say during the confirmation hearing that you know that ultimately this the, the special counsel regulations were tested in uh, was it 1973 or 1974 with the, the Saturday Night massacre and he said the system held and obviously that's it's an answer but it, i'm not sure anyone wants to go through the saturday night massacre again and see if the system still holds well lupe uh, this has been a fascinating uh, conversation we're uh, uh grateful to have you uh watching these uh, uh this confirmation battle and reporting on it um and uh we will uh, have you back on um, to see uh, in the end what what happens. Keep us um, posted on that incident in high school. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We'll uh, do. So, uh, and I just want I just want to say for the benefit of our listeners, um, uh, Lupe uh, uh, for uh, a long time tweeted um, under the handle NYC Southpaw and was one of the most perceptive um, legal analysts on Twitter. But that was uh, anonymous um, and. Uh, He's now uh, another anonymous. Another anonymous. That's right. He's been smoked out <laughs> and <Yeah>. revealed. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, he's co- uh, come in from the cold and and uh, is now is now uh, contributing to Yahoo News uh, with his uh, terrific legal reporting and analysis. And we're grateful to have you um, on the team. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Well, thank you, guys. It's a new and you to say, and it was a real pleasure to be on. All right. Take care. And coming up our conversation with Ken Starr about his new book and the eerie parallels that he sees between his experiences investigating Bill Clinton and Robert Mueller's experience investigating Donald Trump. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. Judge Starr, uh, I'd like to start out uh, by asking you about the title of your book, Contempt. Uh, a memoir of the Clinton investigation. It seems like you're using that word to talk about uh, what you believe was the contempt the Clintons had for the law enforcement process and the inv- and the investigators uh, from your team. But also upon reading it, uh, it seems like uh, there might have been a double entendre there because uh, one thing that comes through is the apparent contempt you have for the Clintons. <laughs> well, the real meaning comes from Judge Susan Weber Wright, the chief judge, who found uh, Bill Clinton in contempt of court. And as you know, this is the first and hopefully only time that a president of the United States has been found in contempt of court. So that's what drove the title. Um, actually, uh, Mike, I know you had another question, but I, this is uh, since he just mentioned Su- uh, Susan Weber Wright's um, contempt finding holding um, I wanted to ask about that uh, because um, you you make a, uh, a, a 
big point about that in the introduction. Um, and I want to read quickly what you say here, which is the final judgment stands as a reminder to all of us that we live not as subjects, but as citizens under the Constitution um, and laws of the United States. We live in the sweet land of liberty, but uh, liberty under law. And I, I wonder, my sense is, is that most Americans uh, probably don't remember that Bill Clinton was held in contempt. I think his his uh, law license was revoked as well, wasn't it? For five years. Right. Um, and, and, I, and I just wonder if that uh, contempt finding... Um, you know, really, um, you know, resonates over over time, and and then, you know, because if you think about it, like, do you remember what Bill Clinton's approval ratings were when he left office, which was about, you know, just a few months after uh, he was held in contempt? Yes, no, they were ionospheric. <laughs> it was sixty five percent. That was the Gallup yeah. poll, which is by far the highest number of any president who left office since. Uh, yeah, Truman, including Truman. What do you? What does that say about? Uh, how do you explain that? And what do you think that says about um, how the American people viewed uh, that whole very difficult um, episode in our history and your investigation? I think that the American people uh, rendered a judgment that impeachment <clears throat> should be a truly last resort. And a, uh, I think a significant majority of the American people were not convinced that impeachment was the appropriate mechanism for dealing the, with that, which I think they took seriously. But I think people rallied around the president as an embattled president because of the effort to remove him from office. And <clears throat> even if someone hadn't voted for President Clinton, there was just, I think, a very significant majority of the American people who said, I don't think so. So to me, what happened actually pointed to the stability and health of the body politic. We believe in elections. More people should vote than do. But we believe in the results of those elections. And therefore, let's have midterm elections, which we're soon going to have. Let's have presidential elections. Let's don't suspend those elections. Lincoln may have suspended habeas corpus, but we're not going to suspend a presidential election. Let we, the people, decide these issues. And as we all know, the president is the only person, I know the vice president tags along, but the president is the only person elected by we, the people, nationally. We don't get to vote for anyone else as a nation. And when we do that, I think we take it very, very seriously. Also, the impeachment of the president <clears throat> was, I think, born in uh, sin, as it were, with the uh, clearly partisan impeachment of President Johnson. And that historical precedent, I think, set the stage for a very strong rhetorical case by uh, people in the president's own party who clearly did not like the fact that he had done what he did, and I'm talking about rule of law issues, I'm not talking about the morality issues, that he was without sin cast the first stone. But that having been said, impeachment was a step too far or a bridge too far. In contrast, and I write about this in the book in some detail, a resolution, a resolution of censure, I believe, would have overwhelmingly passed both houses, and I think the nation would have been shall I say, even happier, 
Now, what would that have done to his numbers? Um, obviously, I can only speculate. It doesn't matter. But the rejection of impeachment is one of the lessons that I thought was important for the nation today, since the air is filled with cries, not just from Maxine Waters, uh, for impeachment. And I think that's a terrible mistake. Is that something that you came to appreciate over time? In other words, um, when you sent uh, your report up to Congress, uh, which uh, uh, you know clearly was going to lead to impeachment proceedings, uh, at that point in time, did you favor that and then later come to uh, decide that it was not the best remedy? No, I've always been a pro-stability, <laughs> a pro-traditions uh, person that the uh, impeachment remedy should be reserved for the most compelling of circumstances. And we just had not reached that, uh, we had not reached that level. And I viewed that and still view the impeachment process as a natural and foreseeable defect of the independent counsel statute, which pointed in the direction of impeachment with a relatively low threshold. You'll recall the law that was passed by Congress in the wake of impeachment efforts against Richard Nixon looked almost enthusiastically to impeachment as a remedy against the president and other high-ranking officials. The standard was substantial and credible information, not even evidence, and not evidence beyond a reasonable doubt, information that may uh, be an impeachable offense. So there's this sort of push toward impeachment built into the statute, which I think was just one of the many unhealthy and defective dimensions of the statute under which uh, I was appointed. Judge, one thing that leapt out at me uh, in the book is uh, you make a lot of the attacks by the president and his allies on you and your investigators. You call it shameless and a real uh, assault on the legal process. Um, yet um, we have seen the same thing in spades from uh, the current president in his attacks on Robert Mueller and what he calls his uh, witch hunt. Uh, you don't draw that parallel in the book. And I just wonder, in light of everything we see every morning in tweets from the president, if that isn't uh, something that uh, a, a parallel that you've drawn yourself and whether you think what the President Trump is doing is as bad, if not worse, than what Bill Clinton and his people did to you. Oh, it's a very eerie uh, parallel. And I've seen reports that <clears throat> the uh, president's uh, legal team were just taking a play uh, out of the Clinton White House uh, playbook, attack the prosecutor, demonize the prosecutor, uh, so, yes, and uh, I do <clears throat> heartily and roundly disapprove uh, of it. Uh, in fact, uh, over a year ago, I wrote uh, a piece that I think could be virtually republished uh, word for word now in the Washington Post by invitation. And the headline that the Post uh, editorial folks used was very accurate, cut it out, Mr. President. And, <laughs> and obviously it did absolutely no good. But I felt better about saying uh, this is shameful to be attacking your own attorney general. This was when the Mueller investigation was so fresh. It was only two months old <clears throat> at that stage. And so the object of the president's uh, ire was, still is, 
uh, the attorney general, but he's expanded the horizons. Uh, and obviously, someone who I'm very fond of, Rudy Giuliani, has really uh, poured uh, fuel on the fire as well. I totally disapprove in, of it. In it, your mind, yep. is it is it part of a pattern, a pattern of obstruction of justice? Not in the criminal sense. Uh, it is, I think. It sounds in the nature of what I would call count eleven, or what we did call count eleven in our referral. And that is, is the president not committing a crime? President Clinton committed a number of crimes. But is the president, in addition to committing crime, abusing his power? And that's what the 11th and final count in our referral uh, uh, identified. And I think we're in that territory of an abuse of power. So, so Judge Starr, um, based on what we were talking about before, uh, so, uh, so possibly— uh, you're not in favor of, but you're not in favor of impeachment. You don't think that's the proper remedy. But at this point, uh, based on everything you've seen, everything you know, um, uh, in- including um, some of those attacks uh, on law enforcement um, and on the Mueller investigation, do you think that uh, President Trump, that Congress ought to censure President Trump or seriously consider be- doing that? Yeah, I think it may be moving to that uh, level. Uh, I would have to sit back and assess all the facts, as we did uh, in 1998. When we assessed the facts in 1998, we saw essentially a crescendo of wrongdoing laid out in counts 1 through 10. But then count 11 was the capstone because we saw, for example, a totally erroneous, ill-founded invocation of executive privilege. We saw a completely made-up, and I talk about this a fair amount in the book, the phantom doctrine of the privilege. What The irony of what we're seeing here is that the president appears to be cooperating with the investigation. For Don McGahn, the president's White House, the White House counsel, to be sitting down with the prosecutors for interviews for 30 hours is, to me, virtually unimaginable. I gather from reports that hundreds of thousands of documents have been uh, turned over. I've seen no litigation over issues of access to evidence. But, but, Judge, so Starr, but Judge Starr, in, in, in the Clinton case, I mean, President Clinton, if I'm counting right, uh, uh, I think he, he uh, uh, submitted to questions uh, in the White House like five separate times. Yes, there's no question that earlier in the investigation there was greater cooperation, but especially during the Lewinsky phase of the investigation, and I'm leaving aside the Rose Law Firm records, which I hope we'll talk about. But as the uh, White House turned to the Lewinsky phase of the investigation, there was deny, delay, obstruct, and attack. And I've not seen that dimension uh, with respect to President uh, Trump. I want, I want to get to the Rose Law Firm records in a moment, but just, you know, final uh, question on this score. How can you say that, that President Trump is cooperating with Mueller when he, his lawyers refuse to let him sit down for an interview that has been repeatedly requested by the special counsel? No, there are levels and dimensions of cooperation. Obviously, there is not cooperation with respect to the interview process or a whatever the that that process may be. So I'm not suggesting that there's 100% cooperation, but I'm not aware of this again invocation totally erroneously, 
never upheld in court of executive privilege and the like. And that's another dimension. President Clinton was asserting these uh, inapplicable privileges or non-existent privileges, and not just asserting them, but taking us to court or requiring us to go to court and doing what? Delay, delay, delay. I'm, I'm not seeing that. If, if it's happening, I'm just not seeing it at this stage in the investigation by Bob Mueller. I've not seen Bob Mueller say, it's time to go to court. Well, he hasn't, he, he hasn't said very much, except when he brings indictments. In fact, that's the only time he's, uh, he's spoken. No, no, I, I, when I say say, he's not filed anything in court. There have been a right. number of court filings. There have been, to my knowledge, no discovery disputes with respect to access uh, to, uh, to documents uh, relating to the president and the presidency. What, why did you decide to write this book now? Uh, really a confluence of events. One, uh, I found myself with much greater freedom uh, once I left uh, unhappily, uh, in part, uh, Baylor University. I resigned as chancellor uh, of Baylor University. But by the way, let the record show, I was not fired for cause. But because of the issues that emerged, I was no longer taking on those responsibilities. And I frankly enjoyed the return to writing. I immediately turned uh, in the summer of 2016, so as the campaign was really getting underway, I turned not to the campaign or to politics. I was totally uninvolved. And I wrote my book on Baylor. And then as I was completing that writing project, which I absolutely loved, Hillary lost the election, signaling to me the end of the Clinton era. So I viewed this as it's either now, given my age, or never. So I felt that this was an important story to tell, especially the untold parts of the story, such as our very serious consideration of indicting Hillary Rodham Clinton before the grand jury, uh, the life of the grand jury in Little Rock expired. Yeah, you make it clear that you and your team never believed Hillary Clinton when she testified uh, multiple times. You talk about her outright mendacity, her uh, her accounts being preposterous, and you do delve in deep uh, uh, about the ro- the discovery of the Rose Law Firm uh, billing records, which had been subpoenaed for some time and then just showed up in the White House residence. You don't. You never believed her account that she did not know how they got there. No, I did not, uh, and do not. Tell uh, us why. Because those uh, law firm billing records were extremely important to our getting to the bottom, and so there is one very clear example of delay uh, and obfuscation. Those records are very important to our understanding of Hillary Rodham Clinton's engagement with Madison Guarantee Savings and Loan, her relationship to James and Susan McDougall, and they disappeared. They vanished in those pre-electronic days. They were just gone. The Rose Law Firm was upset about it. They said, we just don't know. And so what happens when law firm records leave the law firm without authorization? It's called theft. So those records were stolen. Who stole them? Well, who came to Washington, D.C. from the Rose Law Firm? Webster Hubble, Vince Foster Jr., and Hillary Rodham Clinton. Where were the records then found? In the possession, constructively, I would say actually, of Hillary Rodham Clinton. The circumstantial evidence was very strong. 
and uh, it uh, was a very material interference with our investigation because those records had been under subpoena. So there was an obstruction of justice uh, element as well. But that's what we knew, but we felt at the end of the day we could not prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, Judge, um, in some ways, and this comes through in your book, this was a painful chapter in in your life and also for your family. Um, I want to ask you what may be a kind of a tough personal question, that in retrospect, uh, when you got that call from Judge Santel on the special panel asking you to consider uh, being uh, the independent counsel, um, do you in any way uh, regret, uh, in hindsight, saying yes to that job? And let me just add this little coda, which is that if you had not uh, taken this job, I think there's a pretty good chance um, that you you be sitting on the Supreme Court right now. Hey, don't rub it in. <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, well, at, at, at different levels, right? There are different levels to that very appropriate question. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, I would accept it all over again, even knowing what I know now. I'd be a lot smarter, a lot wiser. I wouldn't make stupid, boneheaded mistakes like sitting down with Stephen Brill. Uh, the, uh, the, the snake in the grass, who uh, and I describe this at length in the book, who under false pretenses uh, was saying, hey, let me just sit down with you, help people understand what's going on and so forth. So complete mendacity on his uh, part, totally unethical. He was called into question happily by reporters who said, hey, you didn't quote me right, mm-hmm. et cetera. And he ended up uh, having to back down. But that ushered in all these hor- that really became almost demonic. And I was so apoplectically upset with myself and respect. Uh, I would do it all over again my dear friends, <laughs> but I would be a whole lot smarter. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh has since argued in a law review article that a president should not be subject to uh, illegal process to civil suits and criminal investigation while he's in office. Um, do you share the concerns that he has since raised um, since he worked for you? I uh, understand his concerns. I think they're very legitimate concerns. I do think they merit Congress's attention because look at Clinton versus Jones permitting a civil lawsuit to uh, proceed. But I don't agree at the end of the day. I believe ultimately that the President of the United States is subject to the law and does not get a timeout or a a, a pass, free pass until he concludes his presidency. I just don't believe our justice system and our system of rule of law should permit that. Okay. Well, we're going to have to end it there. But Judge uh, Starr, thank you uh, so much for joining us again on Skullduggery. You're a two-timer. <laughs> That's good. Hey, three's a charm. Yeah, I'll be we'll, right back in we, 30 minutes. We will. Right. All right. <laughs> Take back. care. Thank you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thanks to Ken Starr and Lupe Lupin for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturdays and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. (laughs) 